Welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, although will we ever do a movie, and other curiosities. <laughs> a podcast recently named a new and noteworthy TV and filmed podcast by iTunes. We're on the list right between How to Clean an LCD Screen Weekly and Oops, I Accidentally Created a Podcast, but, you know, still, it's pretty good. That's a great one. If you've never listened to that before, I, I gotta <laughs> recommend it. No, but for real, we actually were named a new and noteworthy podcast on iTunes in their TV and film category, so thank you very much, Apple. We appreciate it. Yeah, and, you know, not thanks to Photoshop this time. No, no. <laughs> not this time. Not this no. time. I am Scott, your co-host for this episode. Joining me is the teen titan of academia, Lily. <laughs> oh, that that was pretty clever. Well, I try. And no longer in the bathroom with <laughs> we joining us. Thank goodness. And I have to apologize. I am so sorry for last week's debacle. It was a horrible situation. And my my deepest apologies to the both of you and to the listeners. Not you know, people probably didn't want to hear my voice, so probably not a, a bad thing. No, no. This is no. Sean, by the way. Yes. In case you forgot. <laughs> Well, with the news of the passing of the great Leonard Nimoy last week, Sean proposed that we discuss an episode of Star Trek for this week's show, which I think is an excellent choice. It's not just any episode. This is the classic episode Amok Time, the first episode of Season 2. An episode that iTunes describes as featuring the feverish mating urges of Mr. Spock. Yeah. One of the reasons why I, I chose it, honestly, yeah. I can't lie about that as i was watching it i was like hmm what an interesting episode to choose to review on our podcast <laughs> it's really the the after school special of the star trek universe you know about how spock becomes a man so it's it's quite interesting named by leonard nimoy himself one of his favorite episodes yeah that he ever you know that was written he really had some excellent things to say about it Leonard Nimoy has a special place in our hearts, especially here in the Northeast. He is a uh, was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and I believe he grew up in, in Massachusetts, um, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Went to school around here. So really uh, a hometown boy, I guess you can say. And all accounts, a really nice guy. Really took seriously his roles, not only in Star Trek, but other voice and film roles that he had but really jumped into the whole Star Trek fandom, Yes, I guess you can say. Mm -hmm. I have a quote from him here. Spock is definitely one of my best friends. When I put on those ears, it's not like just another day. When I become Spock, that day becomes something special. So really, <laughs> I, I thought if I, <laughs> I was to pull any Leonard Nimoy quote for uh, our podcast, that was the perfect one. Yeah, that's great. And you can see he's really... He was in Star Trek, of course, the original series. Was in most or all, I believe, of all the Star Trek original series movies. And directed at least one or two of them. Mm -hmm. I don't have that right in front of me here. Directed also, interestingly, Three Men and the Baby. Yes. In, in the <laughs> mid-80s, which is kind of interesting. That's right. A lot of voice acting, like I mentioned. Um, IMAX type stuff. Uh, educational voice acting. And was also recently, a few years ago, in the reboot of the Star Trek series. So very accomplished actor, 
very very nice guy. Again, we say no, nobody had anything bad that I I saw to say about uh, Leonard Nimoy, and it's unfortunately he you know that he passed away last week. Um, expanding on your point about the fandom, also. When he was in the role, his father owned a barber shop, and the most popular haircut at that barber shop was the Spock cut. Oh no! <laughs> which I thought was absolutely hysterical. It's probably an um, easy one to do. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, and also, the video game, the massive multiplayer online role-playing game, Star Trek Online actually had an in-game memorial for Leonard Nimoy. Now, what's interesting about that is there was a statue in-game of Leonard Nimoy, or of Spock, without the head, because they didn't have rights to the character. But they had him record voiceovers and, and uh, things like that for the beginning of the game, like the opening cutscene, so they had his voice in the game tied to this headless statue. Huh, kind of strange. Well, uh, speaking of his voice, I wanted to uh, just talk about one distinct memory I have about Leonard Nimoy. Of course, I know him from the Star Trek series and the movies and stuff growing up. But for any kid growing up in, you know, Massachusetts, Leonard Nimoy was uh, a huge part of every school field trip. Now, I don't know about for you, Lily. I don't know if he still is, but he was when uh, I was in school, the voice of the Mugar Omni Theater at the Boston Science Museum. Huh. I, I don't know that. think I ever went there. Really? Yeah. Lousy budget cuts. I know. I I mean, the best they took us to was around Halloween. They, they took us to a hayride when I was a little kid, but besides that... Oh, man. Well, anyway, we, we used to go in school every year for a field trip up to the Boston Science Museum, and they have the Omni Theater, which is a giant screen that kind of wraps around from the ceiling to the floor. It's it's incredibly huge with an incredibly powerful projector and sound system. And uh, to introduce whatever movie, they always played the same thing. And it was a pre-recorded message from Leonard Nimoy. And it was really to show you how powerful the sound system was and where all the speakers were. And the lights would come up behind the screen and you could see the array of speakers. And one sentence of Leonard Nimoy's would come out of one speaker one sentence would come out of another speaker, and he would do different things to show you how well the sound system was set up. And he started to quote, who put the bop in the bop, shabop, shabop. It's very, very funny. And they would speed it up and speed it up. And it was it was kind of a strange experience. But that was my <laughs> one of my biggest early memories of Leonard Nimoy. It was never a school field trip without him. He, he definitely was involved in, in all the arts, I guess you can say. Photography also, he wrote two biographies. Interestingly, one was called I Am Not Spock, uh, 1975, which people, it was kind of controversial. People are thinking that he was disting himself from the character, but it really wasn't about that. And he had a follow-up to that in 1995 that says I Am Spock, was the name of that biography. So, <laughs> And one thing I got to mention about um, Leonard Nimoy is he had a musical career also. He had an album, I'm trying to look for my notes here. Yes, Mr. Spock's Music from Outer Space. Oh, boy. Are you serious? Um, yeah, actually, two albums. I'm sorry. The second one was called Two Sides of Leonard Nimoy, which had a bunch of science fiction-themed songs. And the last thing I want to mention about Leonard Nimoy, and this is a fantastic thing. It's very funny. I believe it's on YouTube. Uh, a music, a song in a music video 
called The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins, yes. <laughs> which is extremely funny. It was made in 1967, right in the middle of Star Trek. It's something. It, it's something. <laughs> I'm sure he's very proud of it, or was very proud of it. Definitely check that out. But this this episode, Amok Time, again, was one of Leonard Nimoy's favorites. A lot of Star Trek firsts in this one, as we go through, we'll, we'll talk about those things. This is our little homage to Mr. Spock and Leonard Nimoy. Hope to see him soon. Yes. So just to give you a little bit of setting, or I guess the actual year that this episode takes place is 2267. I thought that was interesting. Wow, right on the horizon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This uh, episode was number 30. It was the first episode of the second season of Star Trek. Production, it was number 34, but episode aired number 30. Broadcast September 15th, 1967. And it was in the new time slot of the series, which was 8.30 p.m. on Friday nights. Prime time. Kind of uh, an important time for Star Trek. You know, Star Trek only lasted three seasons, 66 and 69. So this was the beginning of the second season. It really had to make a splash, which they really did with this episode. Before we get into the contents of the episode, I'm just going to go out there and say I had never seen Star Trek previous to watching this episode ever in my life. (laughs) Knew the hand signal from when I was a young child, but never quite knew what it was in reference to. Now, does that Um, include all Star Trek or just the original series? All Star Trek. Really? Really. So when I watched this, coming into it with no prior knowledge... I gotta say, it was extremely bizarre, but it was also really, really good for when it was produced. That's good. Well, I'm glad we picked this, because I know you told me before that you had never seen Star Trek before, so I thought it would be good to get your, you know, the three levels of experience with Star Trek. I, I think I'm being surprised when I say that I have the most experience with seeing, watching Star Trek. Scott's kind of in the middle. I'm in the middle, yeah. And Lily's at the other end of the spectrum, having <laughs> no experience. So it, it's good to see these three opinions, especially with this really uh, key episode in the series. Now, just to give you some background of where I'm coming from in the middle here, because I'm a few years younger than Sean, I'm older than Lily, but for kids my age, there really weren't that many airings of this TV series. We had maybe on reruns in on the weekends, maybe on uh, TV 38, WSBK in Boston, they would really show this at one in the morning, three in the morning. I really don't have that much watching experience when it comes to the Star Trek franchise. I've watched the films. Uh, I've seen a few Star Trek The Next Generation. But when it comes to the original series, uh, Sean, you are our resident expert. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll see if I can live up to that. <laughs> This is written by a pretty well-known science fiction writer. Thank for his first name. His last name is Sturgeon. Theodore Sturgeon. Theodore Sturgeon. Thank you very much. I didn't see that here. Uh, he also wrote the episode Shore Leave, which is in the first season of Star Trek, which is also a very interesting episode. Uh, one of my favorites also. Credited with many other science fiction type stories. And he really was also important in some... Star Trek canon things, like the Prime Directive, he's the one who introduced that. One of the very interesting things I found out about Theodore Sturgeon, doing some research on him, is there is actually something called the Sturgeon's Law. Anybody else see this? I, I did see that, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a funny little adage, which I think I, I totally believe in. It's the first time I actually heard about it. Briefly, Sturgeon's Law is an adage that is cited as that 90% of everything is crap. <laughs> I, I fully agree with that. As far as I could see, only wrote the two episodes of Star Trek. Again, short leave and a mock time, but two biggies in, in the canon of the series. 
He also wrote Killdozer, if you're familiar yes, <laughs> with that TV movie. Fans of uh, Conan O'Brien will know what Killdozer is, as he spent uh, many episodes making fun of it. Well, I can't win them all, you know, what are you going to do? I also saw that uh, he wrote two episodes of the Twilight Zone as well. Yes, he did. He wrote, uh, as you said, the two episodes of Star Trek. He actually had a third script for Star Trek for a third episode, and because of the limitations of the special effects budget, they could not make an episode out of it. And so it kind of just sat there for a while, and finally it was turned into a book in 1996 by author James Gunn. This, uh, this show was also directed by Joseph Pevney, who passed away in uh, May 18th, 2008 at the age of 96. He directed 14 episodes of Star Trek and many other notable series from the 70s, including two episodes of The Incredible Hulk, which I always liked. Very cool. All right, so let's get right into this uh, episode. We start with a cold open, which is really ahead of its time, and uh, we see that McCoy is telling Kirk that Spock is acting strange. We see here Christine Chapel, played by Majel Barrett. Uh, if you guys aren't familiar, Majel Barrett was uh, the wife of Gene Roddenberry. She was also a huge part of Star Trek yes. throughout its entire life, beginning here playing Nurse Chapel, as we see. And also in uh, the motion picture, I believe she played Nurse Chapel, or was in a scene. Also, Lily, do you know what her other big role was in the later series? I do not. She played the voice of all Federation computers in Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. And the oh, okay. and the J.J. Abrams reboot. Really? I didn't know that. Yes. I, and she also had a role in Deep Space Nine, Roxana Troy, uh, Deanna Troy's mother, who was a recurring character, uh, The Next Generation, and also Deep Space Nine. I just remember her mostly from Deep Space Nine for some reason. Well, she actually bears the distinction of being the only actor to appear in all five live-action Star Trek series, as well as providing voices for the animated series. And as I mentioned, she was used as a voice actor in the J.J. Abrams reboot. Very much a huge part. Sadly, she passed away a few years ago. In 2008, uh, yeah. But a huge part of Star Trek. So here we see that she brings Spock a bowl of Vulcan uh, homestyle soup. It kind of looks like gazpacho or something. Uh, Plomic soup, I believe, yeah. What is it called? Plomic or Plomic soup. Okay. We see that uh, she does have a certain fondness for Spock, but Spock does something strange. It's not on camera. We kind of see the bowl of soup fly through the corridor and smash into the wall. Really uh, out of character for Spock. So we know right away, even before the credits start, that something's wrong here. He definitely. And it should be said, too, that it really shows the range of Leonard Nimoy's acting skills. Just keep in mind, Lily, also, because this is the first time you're watching it, and anybody in the audience, that Spock is a character that's supposed to be emotionless all the time. So there's only actually two instances in the whole series where he shows any kind of major emotion. The first instance was in the pilot of Star Trek called The Cage, where they really hadn't defined his character yet. So there was a little bit more emotion with Spock at that point. And this episode, A Mock Time, which obviously he shows emotion for the reasons we're going to find out. Besides that, but there's it's, nothing. I See, I read that fact online as well, and that kind of struck me as funny because right here, he's showing an emotion. He's showing anger, throwing the bowl of soup through the, the, the doorway. But it, for some reason, it isn't recorded as an emotion. Well, it's, it's way beyond... Uh, Spock's character for what he just did at throwing the soup and the way he's acting is way outside the range that we ever see Spock showing any kind of anger at all. Yeah. Or, you know, the whole Vulcan 
mindset is they control their emotions. They don't show their emotions. They're proud of the fact they purged their emotions a long time before. So to really see him in this re- this respect is, is really bizarre. Yeah, his everything that he does is cold, it's calculated, and it's governed by logic. And that's supposed to be consistent with every one of the Vulcan species. After this, Spock re- goes up to Captain Kirk and requests a leave of absence to go to his homeworld of Vulcan. We get uh, the opening sequence here, which looks like it was remastered for the releases, I believe. Yeah, and just to jump in for one second to go back to <laughs> one little uh, factoid about Spock's speech to Kirk, or his request to Kirk, I should say, about being diverted to Vulcan. He has to go home. One little goof up by the character. It mentions that Vulcan, it would only require a loss of 2.8 light days. And in this context, it says he's using this as a light light days as a measurement of time, mm-hmm. but it's a unit of distance, and it roundly goes up to uh, around 25 billion kilometers, which isn't, you know, realistically that far at all for the Enterprise to be traveling. So just a little a goof in writing. They should have had some other kind of uh, measurement included in there instead of light days. I think it's the only time I've ever heard in Star Trek light days being referenced, yeah. especially as a unit of time. It's kind of like going to the Han Solo yeah, I was just about to say that. <laughs> the parsecs, yeah. it's the same kind of thing. It just it sounds ridiculous if you really think about it. Going into the question about the remastering, Scott. Yeah. The great thing about Star Trek for the 40th anniversary a uh, number of years ago now, they remastered a bunch of, of scenes in all pretty much all the episodes. So, and Lily, you, your benefit to seeing the, the changes here, these graphics of the Enterprise flying, flying through space were horrible well to our to our standards today <laughs> yes 1966 they were great they looked so cheesy the plants looked really cheesy they were just basically blobs of color they've done so much with redoing these episodes and i i have the examples here i, I took note of so we can kind of go through I'll, I'll mention them as we get to that point in the podcast of what changed and if you're watching this uh, along with us, it, it is available on Netflix, and these remastered episodes are what Netflix has available to watch. So if you follow along there, you'll be able to follow along with our episode as well. Yes, but the opening here, the title sequence, is very much remastered. Enterprise looks awesome compared to what it was in the 60s. Yeah, one thing that struck me is the the title cards. The, the credits are so crisp. Yeah, definitely. Um, this did not appear in the original series, you could tell right away. No, not at all. Interiors, not so much. Some things were changed, but definitely the exterior of the Enterprise looks amazing. Okay, so at the end of our opening sequence, we go right to Kirk questioning Spock about this leave of absence that he's requesting without really giving any details about it. He trusts Spock enough to know that something serious is going on. He does honor his request and changes the course of the Enterprise for the planet Vulcan. Well, well, you'd hope that he got the hint, considering he just, like, hucked a bowl of soup at the wall. <laughs> yeah, he knows something serious. He really cares for Spock. Something serious is going on. I mean, it's, you know, quite a thing to request this. This is a basically a military ship. It's a exploration ship. So to make a diversion like this for one crew member's might seem unreasonable, and really should be seem unreasonable. You know, think about uh, a battleship today. You know, one, even if it's the second officer saying, hey, I need to go to you know, Florida, and they're across the, the other side of the planet, it would be unreasonable. But in this case, you know, Kirk wants to help his friend. 
And he's hold Spock is in this scene. He's holding a knife behind his back, or a letter opener. Really, it's not much, but he's holding something, some sharp implement behind his back. There, his emotions are really uh, slowly grabbing hold of him, and he's trying to fight it. So our next scene, we get uh, Kirk. Here, Kirk says it's star date thirty three seventy two point seven. And have fun if you want. Anybody wants to do research on how star dates are figured out. There are so many schools of thought. There's no really no rhyme and reason to it, honestly. They go up. I mean, that's all I really know about star star dates, honestly. <laughs> so we get a scene now on the bridge, the very famous bridge. Uhura informs Kirk of a, an urgent message coming in. The Enterprise now has to be at Altair 6 a week earlier than they expected to be. And so, in accordance with that, the course of the Enterprise is changed back away from Vulcan and now back towards Altair 6. Um, this is another notable episode because it's actually the first um, appearance of Ensign Pavel Chekhov. And also it's the first time that DeForest Kelly, is, as Dr. McCoy, is in the opening credits. He's a main character now. But yeah, we didn't see uh, Ensign Chekhov before this. He was not in the first season of Star Trek, which many people find surprising yeah. since he is a, a key character. Played by Walter and, Koenig. And he will carry on through the remainder of the series and the movies as a major character. So we now get a scene of, of Kirk in his quarters, in his room. He's laying down in front of his prized red candlepin bowling ball and his books that are placed spine up. I thought that was an odd way of storing books in the future. <laughs> they have their reasons. Kirk is trying to think here. He's pondering. And he asked Chekhov how late they would be if they traveled at maximum speed and dropped off Spock first. He really wants to make this work for his friend. He knows he's troubled and he's going through a very difficult time. But Chekhov here is confused. On, on, he's speaking on the view screen to him. Chekhov's confused, saying that they were already heading to Vulcan, or Vulcan, and it was on Spock's orders. Yeah, so he uh, changed the orders, which didn't make uh, Kirk very happy. So Kirk confronts Spock on the bridge, and he takes him out to deck five on the elevator. He speaks to Spock, and Spock doesn't even remember changing the orders, nor the reason why he did it. And he asks to be locked away. At this point, Spock realizes that he's probably a danger to others and himself. So he realizes that something So he has the realization that something is, is going on. Again, we're not clued into what this is yet, but we'll find out very soon. The very uh, nice scene between him and Dr. McCoy and, and Kirk and Dr. McCoy. As you said, he has McCoy examine him. And one way that McCoy gets Spock to allow himself to get examined is by saying, yield to the logic of the situation. So trying to appeal to his logical side, and that, that certainly works on a Vulcan. They're all about logic, so he has to bow to that. Uh, one note I love in all the Star Trek episodes is, um, this is pretty stupid, but McCoy's shirt, he has a special doctor uniform shirt, mm -hmm. short-sleeved, which I find very, very practical. And I, you know, but he has a different <laughs> shirt. <laughs> I wish I had one of those shirts. Where would you wear this shirt? Everywhere. <laughs> all the time? All the time. So we got a nice little cutaway to the bridge and a small conversation between Sulu and Chekhov. And they wonder why the course keeps changing. And he mentions how he's starting to get space sick, which I thought was funny. Right. I'm just going to take a little second to talk about George Takei, who is my favorite public figure of all time. I just think it's really amazing how he's such an avid supporter of the LGBT community and his Facebook page, his Facebook profile page is absolutely hilarious. And his Twitter. Yeah, his Twitter, too, just, is very funny. 
yeah, go and follow George Decay on all platforms of social media if you haven't already. It will definitely be worth your time. <laughs> he is a, a very funny gentleman. Really, like someone else who got into this role of Sulu, wanted to do it as much as he could. Loved Star Trek, loved the fan, loves the fans. Again, a very nice guy. I- interesting, we'll talk about this, sorry, I have a, a rant about this a little bit later on. Notorious dislike William Shatner. And I guess, according to him, the feeling is mutual between him and William Shatner. (laughs) They did not get along after Star Trek. You know, people always say that Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner were very close. No one really knows. I mean, how do you know that unless you see him in person? Here's a a sad fact about George Takei. His family was actually put into an internment camp during World War II. Oh, wow. Really has advocated for getting public acknowledgement of those, the wrongness of those internment camps. Yeah. So back to the show, we see here that McCoy goes to Kirk's office, and he tells Kirk that if they don't get Spock to Vulcan within a week, maybe even eight days, at the most, he'll die. Yeah, and that's a pretty common carry-on with with his uh, symptoms and this condition. It also appears in other Star Trek series, especially Star Trek Voyager, and it's very it can be fatal, and that the characters that affects in Voyager also are gripped by the same issues. The whole concept is a little awkward to me. Oh, this whole thing's <laughs> awkward. I can't believe this aired. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's a great episode, don't get me wrong, but wow. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that. I was actually looking at did some research. <laughs> well, this this script, when it first aired in... It aired? Oh, yes, here we go. say, Sean? No, 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 nothing bad. This topic of Vulcan anatomy and sexuality was deemed to be too adult and topic for German TV in 1967. So it's pretty funny. I'd love to find a copy of this. The German television aired a version of this that was radically changed, basically rearranging the entire episode and cutting a lot of scenes and the sexual aspect of this. It made it seem like <laughs> Spock was just had this uh, space sickness, space fever, and that was it. Huh. They, they took out everything else. So it was basically a totally different episode. So this this was a big moment in the episode where they have a week to get him home or he'll die. So at this point, the show cuts into a commercial break. So why don't we take the opportunity to take a commercial break of our own? We'll pay some bills and we'll be right back. Hello, friends. This is Sean from the Hitting Play Podcast. I'm here to tell you about an exciting new development in medical science. Picture the situation. You're sitting at a board meeting, you're in your car stuck in traffic, or you're just about to begin recording your podcast when, uh uh-oh, you have that feeling, intestinal distress. But now, there is a solution. Triple D. Triple D stands for Diarrhea, Detection, and Defense. How does it work? Well, Triple D is an easy-to-swallow three-inch-long pill that is made from space-age polymers and nanotechnology that goes down and embeds itself into your intestinal tract. Triple D then gets to work. It monitors for signs of intestinal distress using its built-in Bluetooth adapter to connect your smartphone or tablet to give you an instant status of your bowels at any moment. When distress is detected, Triple D jumps into action, sending you a text message or an email to alert you of the oncoming issue. Triple D will then expand up to 10 times its size to completely block your intestine 
until you can get to a bathroom facility and take care of business. You might want to check with your doctor before using Triple D. Side effects can include death, stroke, amnesia, restless leg syndrome, aches and pains, blindness, colored urine, hallucinations, night terrors, sudden weight loss, sudden weight gain, fatigue, diarrhea, radiation poisoning, unwanted pregnancy, birth defects, rectal itch, hair loss, dizziness, and nausea. So we're good on anal seepage? (laughs) And anal seepage. Thank you for reminding me of that one. Triple D. Diarrhea detection and defense. Ten times its size. That's 30 inches. (laughs) And we're back. Here we see that there is now a growing imbalance of body functions within Spock. He's like a human body being filled with adrenaline, as Dr. McCoy explains to Captain Kirk. But Spock still won't talk about what's causing it. He's as tight-lipped about it as an Aldebaran shell mouth, as Dr. McCoy explains. Which I'm guessing is a clam of some kind. So we cut now back to Spock's quarters. He's viewing an image of a young Vulcan girl. T-Pring, as we'll find out later on. This is one of the changes that was made for the uh, revised or remastered. In the original photo that he's looking at, there was no fancy background like we see here. We can see how she's standing in a garden on Vulcan. The original background was kind of awkward. It was just a blue background. She was standing in front of a a board or something. One thing to note about this child actor placed the young T'Pring. The only ears they had must have been adult Vulcan ears, because obviously the ears are the size of an adult's ears. (laughs) They grow into their ears. Yes. (laughs) So Kirk enters Spock's quarters again, and he's, he's questioning him once again, and Spock reveals that it's a very deeply personal thing. It has to do with biology. Vulcan biology. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Say no more. (laughs) Yes. And so Spock and Kirk pretty much have the talk, or at least the beginnings of it, which I thought was very awkward, I could see. Spock basically mentions that this is a normal response, just like salmon have on Earth to return to their spawning place at a certain period of their life. Yes, I even had that in my notes. Spock is a giant salmon. (laughs) Basically. Picture that. (laughs) So here it's revealed now that Spock must go back to Vulcan for a ritual or a ceremony called Pon Far, as Sean brought out. This is the time of Vulcan mating. So he must return home to take a wife. And that's who that little girl on the screen is. That's Spock's wife from years ago. As a little girl, not currently. Cur- yes. yes, that's a, an important distinction to make. That uh, they were. It's almost uh, an arranged marriage. It's a betrothal, as he brings out. So he is scheduled to marry this Vulcan lady at Pon Far when uh, they are of age. And so now this is what the whole episode hinges around, this meeting and this marriage and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they, they mentioned they were wed at age, or not wed, I guess paired at age seven. So I did a little bit of research here at this point, and uh, that is actually not the youngest people have gotten married. In Syria, there is a five-year-old boy married to a three-year-old girl at this moment in time. Oh, wow. That's yeah. disturbing. Yes, quite. But maybe normal in some cultures, so we shouldn't judge. 
There's a, a nice little scene where Spock is playing an instrument. I really didn't get a chance to look up what that was. It's uh, almost uh, a harp-like instrument. And he goes up to the view screen and smashes it, saying, leave me alone. That's a great scene. I mean, just, just showing, I mean, it's just so funny to see that thing crumple. Yes. Vulcans are stronger than humans, but no parts flying anywhere. Just obviously made a silly little prop they make. Also disturbing in Spock's bedroom is that guy holding an orb that glows occasionally. I noticed that stood out. I don't know how he sleeps with that thing. Maybe it's a nightlight or something for him. But <laughs> It's like a gargoyle or something. So Kirk then asks Starfleet Command for permission to go to Vulcan, but he won't reveal why. He wants to honor his agreement of confidentiality with Spock, and he won't say why. He just wants to go. Starfleet explains that it can't be done. The Starfleet needs to have a representative there at this ceremony at Altair 6. It's very important that they show up, according to Starfleet anyway. And he gives the order to Captain Kirk, the Starfleet commander, to go to Altair 6. They are not to change course, they are to go directly there. So Kirk decides to disobey the orders. He orders the Enterprise back to Vulcan anyway. Yeah, it really shows, again, his loyalty for his friends and his fellow officer to disobey these orders, which, you know, could be a, a court-martialing offense. And you might wonder why it's so important for the Enterprise to be at Altair for this occasion. And just keep in mind that Enterprise was the flagship of Starfleet, so it was an important and well-known vessel at this time. Actually, in the original Mr. Sturgeon, the original s screenplay for this, Basically, he this was not an issue, really. I think they add this to add a little drama to the situation, but Kirk was able to get out of it pretty easily in the original screenplay. So we have another scene in Spock's quarters where Spock is sleeping, and Miss Chapel come walks right in and, and starts uh, checking up on him. Yeah, it just looms over him. Yeah, it's kind of disturbing. Yeah, She's yeah. a little bit creepy. I guess she has that type of clearance. And Spock either was awake anyway or he woke up and he turned to her as she was walking away and, and calls her over and says that he had a dream that she was trying to tell him something probably alluding to the fact that she's kind of had a crush on him and he said it would be illogical for us to protest against our natures yeah it's definitely out of character but his lo his logical side did prevail and uh he did ask her for some of that vulcan soup on the elevator now spock asked kirk to beam down to vulcan with him to stand by his side at the ceremony. By tradition, he explains that the male is supposed to be accompanied by his closest friends. And Spock also asked McCoy uh, to go with him. So this is like the Vulcan prom, pretty much, and this this guy wants to, <laughs> to bring his uh, closest buddies. Uh, or they're his best men, yeah, the Vulcan wedding. Uh, we, before this, when uh, Enterprise reaches Vulcan, we see the second of three CGI replacements in this episode. The original Vulcan was, again, a big red blob, and a lot smaller than the the CGI replacement is. You know, actually, it looks like a planet now. It is still red in color, like Vulcan is supposed to be mostly desert and a very hot planet. But you can see a polar, or you can see cloud cover over the planet. You can see ridges, just like you would see on Earth or Mars, if you were to see an actual picture of one of those planets. So, very nice job with the redoing of the CGI and that. Speaking of Captain Kirk and McCoy being um, Spock's best men, Leonard Nimoy was actually William Shatner's best man at William Shatner's third wedding. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I believe that there's a godfather-godchild relationship somewhere in there, too. I'm not sure which way. Life imitates art. That's right. So Spock, Kirk, and McCoy go to the bridge. 
And they're greeted on the screen by T'Pring, here played by Arlene Martel. Arlene Martel also, in addition to playing a Vulcan in this very important episode of Star Trek, this is her only appearance in the series, she also was in one of the most famous episodes of The Outer Limits as well, a very famous episode written by Harlan Ellison. She also appeared in an episode of Battlestar Galactica, the, the series from 1978. Arlene Martel actually passed away this past summer, August 12th, 2014, at the age of 78. So here, Spock is greeted by T'Pring. It's probably the first time that they've met since they were uh, young children. And they go on to repeat Michael Bolton lyrics to one another or something. <laughs> Never and always touching and touched. Oh yeah, I was like, what is going on? <laughs> Very strange. This is our courtship right here. Yes. This is uh, this is speed dating in the Vulcan world. Yes. You do a quick Skype, you Google some lyrics and repeat them. And Spock comes out with the revelation that amazes everyone that she is actually his wife. Now, they're not really married yet, though, right? Yeah, it's one of those gray areas, I think. So we come back from commercial break, and Spock, Kirk, and McCoy beam down to Vulcan. Another nice shot of Vulcan and Enterprise orbiting the CGI Vulcan. Yeah, that's, that's when I realized, like, oh, wow, they remastered a lot, because th that overhead view of the planet was beautiful, and I know they certainly couldn't get that shot in the 1960s. And we also, after they beam down, have our third CGI replacement, which is actually, the, I think, the coolest one in this episode. When they're walking, it shows them walking across this, this chasm to this, like, Stonehenge almost. Yeah. This Vulcan ritual site. But they really did a good job putting the CGI effects and of them walking across this stone walkway. Very cool. And you can see the Vulcan landscape in the background. And this is the place of the of Kunit Califi, if I'm saying that right? I think that's correct. Yeah, it, it's, close enough. Close enough. It's, re it's revealed that it's a place used by Spock's people, the Vulcans, for at least 2,000 Earth years. And it means marriage or challenge. Uh, it might have a double meaning in their language. Probably both, as we'll see. <laughs> that's kind of funny. <laughs> Marriage isn't a word, it's a sentence. That's the Vulcan version of that phrase. So we see that this area is, like Sean said, like Stonehenge, like a, an ancient temple, a very round, large area in which uh, people can enter from either side. There's a lot of green hexagon wind chimes. Yeah, I really like those. Those are <laughs> quite cool. The hex hexagon gong. Yes. Here, Spock reveals that it's, it's less than a marriage, more of a betrothal, and it's been arranged since they were seven, as we've uh, talked about. And so uh, the cosplays enter, and an older Vulcan lady is being carried in. On a comfy-looking uh, sofa reclining... Well, I guess it's not reclining. It just kind of looked like a living room chair, to be honest. <laughs> She's got the best seat in the Kunat Califi. So Kirk explains to McCoy that that lady, it's an older lady sitting on it, her name is Tapau. A lot of uh, capital T apostrophe names in the Vulcan homeworld. And actually, this is the first time where this starts a precedent where female Vulcans have that uh, the capital T apostrophe names. That's like how you differentiate a Vulcan female and a Vulcan male. What about Savik? Uh, that's the one exception, I guess. Kirstie Alley ruins everything she steps she, into. She screwed it up, yeah. <laughs> but most Vulcan females have this, yeah, uh, Tapau here, Tapal which is the name of the Vulcan in Star Trek Enterprise. Actually, there was some controversy that they were trying to, and this actually might have been true, they were trying to model to Paul in, in Enterprise, which takes place a couple hundred years before 
or 100 years or so before the original series takes place to be T'Pau, an old T'Pau in the, the original series. Oh, okay. They, they kind of shot that idea out of the water, but that's that was the original thought, was that T'Pau was going to be a younger version of this wizened elderly character. That's interesting. That would have been yeah. kind of neat. Kirk explains to McCoy that it's T'Pau. She is the only Vulcan to turn down a seat on the Federation Council. Which is quite a thing. I guess so. She's played here by Celia Lovsky. Uh, Celia Lovsky passed away at the age of 82, October 12th, 1979. She was born in the 1890s. And 1896 or 7, yeah. Wow. I, and she, I thought that this was interesting. She was born in Austria-Hungary, back when there was an Austria-Hungary. Yeah. <laughs> Before the First World War, yeah. Uh, interesting to note, too, we see our first glimpse of the Vulcan hand salute. Yes. Yeah. The history behind this was that this is something that, I want to say Leonard McCoy, but that's not correct, Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> came up with and mentioned to Gene Roddenberry, the director of this episode, he'd like to do this hand gesture between Vulcans, and they agreed. It was unique, and it came from, actually, it's actually a Jewish prayer hand gesture that he he saw as a child during, when he was in, in Jewish ceremonies. So that's where he took this from. It's become very famous. Everyone does this, as you might have seen. Interestingly, too, is that they had to actually tape this actress's fingers together to make this hand gesture because she cannot do it naturally. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not easy to do if you try it yourself. No, I can only do it with my left hand, and growing up, I tried doing it. I could never get it to work. Yeah. Really? See, I have no problem. So it depends on your how your hand is made, I guess. This is also the first appearance of the Vulcan phrase, or both Vulcan phrases, peace and long life, and also live long and prosper. The first appearances of those. Very cool. Yeah, and it's funny, Sean had told me this uh, previous to me watching this episode. You know, I said I only had watched a handful of these episodes to begin with growing up. These are things that you think have been there from the very beginning. It's amazing to find out, uh, as a casual viewer like myself, that these were instituted at the beginning of season two. Definitely, um, and people have that, like you said, that uh, thought that they're from the very beginning, and they're, they're not. Season one of Star Trek, especially the pilot, the cage, was very kind of bizarre compared to the later seasons they really had to define themselves and find their feet in this in the series as they were doing it through season one and things started really taking off here in, in season two there were very good season one episodes don't get me wrong but again this is where the show started becoming more popular and they really instituted more of these these commonly known star trek things i guess you could say now Tapao explains here that what they were about to see comes down from the time of the beginning although spock already said it's about 2,000 years. Tapao then says something that sounds like cauliflower, which uh, I guess is Vulcan for shake it like a Polaroid picture, because then each of the two Vulcan Comic-Con attendees, they, they shake their respective uh, jingle bell <laughs> abacus or whatever they're holding. Hexagonal spells, yep. <laughs> and so uh, to bring stop Spock from hitting the green hexagon gong with the rock candy reflex tester, and Spock drops it in front of Hawkman's brother. And T'Pring has chosen a challenger for Spock. Yeah, so we find out here that there's basically only two ways to get out of this Ponfar state. Either do the deed, we all know what the deed is, fight to the death, and that will also cleanse your you of this blood fever, as it's mentioned, and, and end this Ponfar for you. Yes, he's deep in the blood fever. So... We see during everything that's transpiring, they keep cutting back to this one Vulcan man. He is kind of like looking side to side. They keep cutting to him. 
So it appears as though T'Pau is going to choose this Vulcan man that the camera obviously is cutting back to over and over again. This is here uh, Stan, played by Lawrence Montaigne. Yes. So I've got an interesting fact about Stan here. He was originally supposed to be named Spore, but I think it was one of the writers that felt that would have been too much of a Freudian slip, so they changed it to Stan. Well, that's good. Probably a good idea. And a little too close to Spock, too. And so. Spork. Spork, yes. <laughs> yeah. Should have been Spork. That would have been great. What about Smock? One of them should be named Smock. Spock's brother. <laughs> <laughs> Messy guy. <laughs> so we think that she's going to choose Stan. I mean, it's been set up for us, it seems obvious. But instead, as all ladies tend to do on Star Trek, she chooses Kirk. Because why not? Spock protests, saying, I will do what I must, but not to him. Yeah, and Spock, I, I love the hand gestures. He's deep in the blood fever now. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, he's like over in the corner twiddling his thumbs, like doing the signature evil mastermind hand gesture with his like, eyes rolled back in his head. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, um, a little goof in this. I don't know if it's in, I didn't see it in the remastered edition um, that we were watching on Netflix, but maybe in the original viewing of this broadcast, where... During this time where Spock is, you know, has his his uh, hands in front of his face and he's in the blood fever against the wall, crouching down, there was a time when McCoy and Kirk are speaking with DePaul, and I guess Leonard Nimoy didn't know in the original uh, broadcasting this or the filming that he was seen in the background, because he's kind of just leaning against the wall casually. Yeah. Like, he's, oh, I'm out of the scene, I'm out of the frame, I don't have to, I could just, you know, sit here and do what I want until they call to me again. I'll go back in my my blood fever pose. So kind of an interesting little goof that they make. Again, I couldn't find it, but, it, you know, someone mentioned it must be there. Or it was removed when they were yeah, remastered possibly as well. Exactly. So we see Spock here, is, he's showing emotion. It's getting the best of him. A guard ties a lovely purple knitted scarf around his waist. Very stylish. <laughs> we get... Uh... It's a sash. It's a sash. Ah. And uh, we get some more jingle bells. For, uh, you know, the ambiance. So Kirk accepts the challenge, and his plan is basically he'll accept, and then he'll just let Spock win. Yeah, but there's uh, a little caveat to that, uh, as we find out in a moment, that, again, this is not just a friendly little tussle, but this is actually a battle to the death. Yes, as T'Pau yes. reveals. So during this little battle, they bring out this bizarre-looking weapon called a Lurpa, which is has a fan-shaped blade on one end and a blunt, I don't know, rock-looking thing at the butt. Yeah, of it. use one for landscaping. Now, you edge out the uh, <laughs> edge of the garden with it. Basically, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a couple of problems with this battle scene here. <laughs> Besides the fact that there are obvious stunt doubles for Spock and Kirk, not only that, ha did throughout the episode, or throughout Star Trek in general, have you seen the heels that Spock wears? Those are like two-inch heels. <laughs> How is he battling on sand in two-inch heels? Those are valid points. He yes. yes. He's, he's going to break an ankle. I mean, come on. I'm worried about Spock's well-being here. <laughs> I totally, I can't disagree with you. Forget Spock, this is Leonard Nimoy walking around a set with two-inch heels. In the sand. <laughs> oh. Okay, my second problem with this is Lerpa 
totally a terrible idea for a weapon. It must be so bottom heavy. How are you supposed to swing the fan blade, period? Like, being accurate at all with this extremely heavy end of the weapon, always wanting to bring it down to the center of the earth. Yeah, it doesn't really thaw that out. I think it just said we need some kind of counterweight on this thing. And, you know, obviously it's made of uh, styrofoam, so we don't see the weight really until they throw it to Kirk for the first time and he kind of catches it and is surprised by the weight of it. It's his little William Shatner's acting skills there. <laughs> Great um, acting skills. The fight scene is, is fantastic. <laughs> the music in this fight scene, which is called the, you know, whatever it's called, the fight scene song, it is one of my favorite pieces of music anywhere, especially, you know, relating to a, a sci-fi show. Yeah. It's fantastic. The you know the, the whole dun 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 dun. dun. It's, it's it's great. It's been spoofed many times. Uh, most notably in the movie The Cable Guy with Jim Carrey. They basically did a, a remake of this thing in the medieval time sequence of that movie. If you ever saw it before? Unfortunately, Jim Carrey is is chanting this this uh, song um, and doing Spock line one liners as he's fighting Matthew Broderick in that movie. The Simpsons episode Deep Space Homer. And The Day the Earth Stood Cool were two episodes where this was also shown, this song. One thing most notably I know is Futurama. Yes. It's the national anthem of Dr. Zoidberg's planet, Decapod 10. Yes. There's also a very similar fight scene between Dr. Zoidberg and Fry. They spoofed, and this is the... <laughs> they stand for the national anthem, and that's what it is, is uh, this uh, <laughs> Star Trek theme. Which is a great joke. In fact, that whole episode really mirrors this one. Very, very similar, yeah. And I was... More acquainted or better acquainted with the Futurama episode. So I was able to follow this plot quite easily because of the Futurama. So they begin fighting. We come back from commercial break and they immediately begin fighting. Spock goes immediately for Kirk's nipples, uh, slicing open his shirt. I guess that's uh, a Vulcan pressure point or something that he was going for. And Spock proves to be very strong. Of course, we know that the Vulcans are stronger as well as the fact that Vulcan is a very hot planet and the air is thin, so even an exceptionally strong human would have a difficult time there. So McCoy offers to help Kirk compensate for Vulcan's temperature and thin air by administering an injection of a triox compound. And T'Pau allows it for some reason. They were not allowed to talk or interfere, but yeah, go ahead, give him some PEDs. Probably give him some, you know, it's just, I guess the whole mindset was to give him a level the playing field a little bit because he wasn't used to the environment of Vulcan as Spock was. Uh, notable too that Spock breaks the uh, gong. Yes. You'd think that someone would be upset about that. Apparently they take it in stride. Uh, you'd think that they would probably have to pay for that as family down the road. <laughs> I mean, it's 2000... You break it, you buy it! Yeah, 2,000 year old piece of uh, looks like emerald there and they shatters it. So, very disturbing. There's no Vulcan Antiques Roadshow, fortunately. So they resume fighting. Now the weapons have changed. Now they have uh, stylish canvas belts that they're whipping each other with. And uh, Spock eventually gets Kirk in a chokehold, wraps around, wraps the belt around his neck, and almost pushes him into that glowing pit of bacon bits in the center of the floor. <laughs> the light that's shining up to simulate a fire, you mean? Yes. Oh, is that what that was? Okay. Yep. So finally, uh, Kirk stops breathing. <laughs> T'Pau declares the fight over, and McCoy goes up to check on Captain Kirk and declares him dead. T'Pau then says, I grieve it, thee. <laughs> and that is actually a goof. It would be more correct to say thou there instead of thee. <laughs> yeah, very odd uh, to hear some old English words thrown in there. 
I know. Didn't expect that. A Vulcan, yeah. Lost yeah, they're him. aliens, not Shakespearean. Maybe she thought that's how they spoke, and, you know, she was just trying it. Maybe she did read only Shakespeare, and that's how she figured all humans spoke. So McCoy informs Spock that he's now in command of the Enterprise and asks him if he has any orders. And Spock asks to be dropped at the nearest starbase so he can surrender to the authorities. We can see more of Spock's regular persona, his real personality, kind of slowly coming back, and he realizes it's time to take responsibility for what he did. The blood fever has been broken. The blood fever. <laughs> and we get this this nice scene before they beam back up to the Enterprise where he talks to Tipring. She explains that she wanted to be with Stan the whole time instead of Spock. Because Spock had become widely known amongst the Vulcans and he was, you know, somewhat famous or, you know, had some notoriety. And she didn't simply want to be known as the consort of a legend. She picked Kirk to challenge because if Kirk won, he wouldn't have accepted her anyway, and she could be with Stunt. If Spock won, he would not have accepted her because of this whole challenge, and again, she could be with Stunt. So for her, it was a win-win situation, and after hearing this, Spock was actually pretty impressed, and he described it as flawlessly logical, which she took as an honor. I still think she's a horrible woman. She is. She really is. <laughs> yeah, what if... Jerk face. Yeah, very the, the, conniving. Just, you know, just, uh, I, I can't stand her character after this. And yeah, but then Spock burns her. He says, after a time you may find that having is not so pleasing a thing after all as wanting. It is not logical, but is often true. Meaning, you can have her. Yeah. Ooh, she... ice for that burn. <laughs> yeah. Basically saying to Stan that she's a real pain in the butt and she's going to be uh, a headache. And so we, we get the the very first, as Lily mentioned, this is the first episode in which it appears, but this is the first moment here where we get the salute of Live Long and Prosper, and Spock beams up. So back on the Enterprise, Spock resigns. And he explains to McCoy that, uh, you know, he's relinquishing his command because he murdered the captain, murdered his friend. And behind him, Kirk approaches. Completely fine. And he... In a great moment of this episode, he says, Jim, smiles and embraces him. Yeah, that's one of my favorites, because it's total, you know, at this point, Spock is back to his logical self. His yes. blood fever is gone, um, so it's really him losing his emotions, you know, and losing control for a second, because he's so f happy to see his friend is alive. Very, very heartwarming, mm -hmm. yes. So McCoy here reveals that it wasn't a triox compound after all. It was a neural paralyzer that simulated death. You know, that old thing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, of course, yes. And we see that Spock has a little bit of embarrassment here. He explains to McCoy that his emotional outburst upon seeing that Kirk was okay was quite logical. He was just relieved to see that Starfleet didn't lose their most proficient captain. Yeah, he's full of it. <laughs> His reaction is quite logical. He said he agrees with Spock. Oh, yeah, it's quite logical response. And he goes, in a pig's eye. Not a term I'm that familiar with, but okay. Yeah, me either. It's, it's a little bizarre. And we also see here that Starfleet has approved at this point their um, diversion to Vulcan. So that's wrapped up nicely with a bow that they're able to not get in trouble for disobeying orders. <laughs> a truly happy ending. Correct. Except for that nipple scar that Kirk now has to heal before well, they, all, heal before they, they get to Altair 6. No, he could just... They have modern <laughs> he technology. Just... He's fine. 
He just used it to pick up chicks, say he got in a fight with a uh, shark or something. <laughs> Although he's already a space captain, so I don't know if... <laughs> he does pick up chicks with that, trust me. So, as a closing thought for this episode, this is one of the few episodes that Scotty is not in. Yeah. Yeah, very sad. I miss Scotty in this episode. Yeah, they should have just inserted the beat me up, Scotty, line. Yeah. Aye, <laughs> sir. As somebody named Scott, I could do without hearing that that catchphrase. <laughs> beat me up, Scott. I used to hear that quite a, a bit. Not so much anymore, but uh, yeah, thanks to J.J. Abrams, I'll probably be hearing it more. So the credits roll, and uh, I notice at the end we get a Desilu Productions title card. I didn't realize that this uh, was produced through them. That's the production company created by Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. Yes, it is. Yeah, and they were a big part in having Star Trek be on the air. Definitely. So any Trekkie out there, you have a lot to owe to the Lucy for for Star Trek being around. I used to love I Love Lucy. Great show. So I guess any any uh, thoughts from you guys, fi- closing thoughts about this episode or Star Trek in general? Especially, you know, Lily, what did you think? Um, I actually really liked it, and I think I'm going to commit myself to watching the entirety of it. I also recommend um, Star Trek The Next Generation. It's a very good series. No, I mean, we were kind of poking fun, me especially, at the set design and stuff. But I just want to make it clear. I do love this show. It, it's it's very campy, and of course it's, you know, the 60s, low-budget, shoestring-budget set design. But what it is is very brilliant storytelling. This isn't Lost in Space where, you know, you get the danger Will Robinson, you know, silly yeah. effects and everything. This is actually very grown-up storytelling very smart writing, really storylines that will influence science fiction for generations and still to this day. Yeah, and it really did. I mean, Star Trek had such, even after it was canceled by CBS in 69, such a huge fan base after that point. I mean, 10 years later, they named the first space shuttle after, you know, the prototype after the Enterprise because of the huge writing campaign to make it happen. There's a famous picture of the entire crew of... Um, our, our actors, Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner, all at the, the reveal of that space shuttle. Very cool. Huh. Um, and it spawned, you know, numerous movies that were all very popular, pretty much. Numerous follow-up series, new movies now. It's a huge, huge um, market and a huge brand. Yeah, and as you mentioned the, the movies, I was thinking about the J.J. Abrams reboot. Um, I assume it's going to be at least a trilogy. We now, at the time of this recording, only have the two. I really hope there's no Ponfar storyline. I know there's no Vulcan anymore. So what happens to Spock when these uh, urges come about and he has to go to a world that doesn't exist? Well, you know, it's actually interesting because, again, the only Ponfar episode I can recall... There's actually two other ones I can recall, and they're both in Star Trek Voyager. (laughs) <laughs> if I remember correctly, um, because they're in, that, they're in that very situation where, you know, if you don't know Star Trek Voyager, a starship was thrown, you know, 70,000 light years away from the Federation, away from Vulcan, and they were basically stranded and had to make their way home, which would have taken about 70 years. Thankfully, they got home in sooner time than that, not to give away any spoilers. Oh, man. But there were at least two Vulcans on that ship that went through the pond far during the run. And it's very interesting how they resolved it using technology in the holodeck, honestly, basically to recreate what we see here. But yeah, they, they did address it again. It did come up and they did. That's a good point, though, how they do that. And they were able to, with some success, resolve those conflicts. And it's actually pretty funny. The first episode that resolved that in, in Star Trek Voyager 
you know, they're, they're kind of shoot, they're kind of walking, tiptoeing around the whole sex thing in this episode, calling it biology. Mm-hmm. They flat out say, oh, you're talking about sex, you know, in that episode. It's kind of <laughs> funny. That was in the mid-90s, so they, they weren't tiptoeing about it anymore. I have just one rant, if I could, for a second. Please. And this is not relating to this episode, but it's relating briefly to something that happened after Leonard Nimoy died. It's regarding the reaction, I don't know if you guys saw it, of that William Shatner received after uh, Leonard Nimoy died. And basically, William Shatner announced on Twitter and elsewhere that he would not be attending the funeral of Leonard Nimoy, which was last Saturday, I believe. Huh. It was a big controversy. People were calling him a jerk. He had to defend himself on Twitter. Basically, what happened, as far as I could see, was that the, the funeral was in California. Because Leonard Nimoy was Jewish, Jewish tradition, I believe, is that they have a funeral pretty soon after the death. So he was he died on Friday, and he was buried on Saturday. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, it was very, very quick. William Shatner, when this happened, was in Florida at a charity benefit. That was going to be taking place last weekend. Took place last weekend. That he had committed to already, and he came out and said, "You know, I am. I, I can't make it there for the funeral. I'm with, my thoughts are with the family." And people gave him a really hard time about this. I am in defense, and I've heard radio personalities also speak out against William Shatner because of this, calling him a jerk. National media called him a jerk, Captain hmm. Jerk. They called him. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> I, you know what, <laughs> I have to defend William Shatner about this. First of all, no one knows the relationship that him and Leonard Nimoy had, how often they were in communication. They could have said their goodbyes months ago. Leonard Nimoy knew he was sick for a while, over a year now. We don't know. It's it's private between those two. So, you know, maybe Leonard Nimoy said to William Shatner, you know, don't put yourself out coming to this. Maybe William Shatner didn't want to make a spectacle of the funeral, wanted to respect the privacy of the family. We don't know. So anybody who gives William Shatner a hard time for not being there, I mean, the guy obviously was didn't want to break a commitment that he already had with an, a charity, a charitable organization. Yeah. I just don't see giving him a hard time about this just because we, we don't know the circumstances fully. He was trying to do a good thing, and it would have been a real uh, hardship and disappointed people, a lot of people, and a charity if he was to just pack up and head back to California for a funeral. So anybody who wants to give William Shatner a hard time, you know, get a life, and (laughs) that's my rant. I think they should just shut up. If Shatner and Nimoy were very good friends, I could see the family understanding and giving him a pass, so to speak. If they weren't very good friends, I can understand the family being happy with him not being there. So is there really an issue here? I don't think there is, no. No. Is the the media making an issue out of something that wasn't an issue? All right, so that's pretty much going to do it for our episode. I just have one show note. Uh, We got a tweet from at OneWallCinema on Twitter, and he explained to us, uh, pertaining to the last episode, that Flat Eric, the yellow puppet that sits on top of the coat rack in the Office UK... He can also be seen in a music video entitled Flat Beat by Mr. Oizo. And uh, it's very funny. So check that out on YouTube. And uh, thanks to One Wall Cinema. He does a series on YouTube where uh, his kids unbox uh, loot crates and things like that. So check him out. Uh, As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, uh, anything not pun far related at uh, hittingplayshow (laughs) at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter at hittingplay. 
And you guys have plugs? Um, yes, I will go ahead and plug my YouTube channel, that's Lilliputian22, and also my Twitter, which has the same handle. Uh, if you're into video games, gaming, anything of that sort, go check out both of those to be updated with what I put out. My first plug is our group Minecraft site, which is 3 Blind Mice at YouTube. You can search 3 Blind Mice and should be able to find it where we do Minecraft related YouTube videos. Also, I'd like to put a plug out there for a great show, which I watched this week that just started. Maybe we'll do an episode of it in the future on this show. The Last Man on Earth. Yes. Which is on Fox. Fantastic show starring Will Forte and uh, Kristen Schaal. Fantastic. Wonderful show. Very funny. Uh, It's on Fox. I don't know what night. Look in the TV guide or whatever. Sunday night. Sunday night on Fox. So that's a great show. Also, my friend Scott's MC and Friends Vine page. He has a Vine that is he did for Major League Soccer. So check out Vine MLS and see that. It's fantastic. Oh, thanks. And it stars us together as Vine characters. It's really good. My last plug, of course, is for Triple D. <laughs> Pick up your Triple D <laughs> member, Diarrhea Detection Defense. Wow, I don't know if I could top that. I mean, my plugs are just, my Twitter account is at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. I'm on Vine. My name is MC and Friends. I do flip page animation, little cartoons. I try to be humorous. Uh, Sean brought out, I, I did something for Major League Soccer recently. And uh, yeah, you can check me out there. Also, just want to mention, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out. And if you do, we will give you a shout out on the show. Well, we have been Lily, Sean, and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, beam us out, Scott.